0: Seventy-four, Dirty Money. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February eleventh, two 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about objects featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. If you think money is hard to come by today, it was even harder in the 1850s. And the money you did find, you probably didn't want. Join museum director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine paper money issued by banks in Kansas during the state's territorial period. With no regulation and no federal backing, Early banking on the frontier was an incredibly risky business. Sometimes they succeeded, but more often they failed, and you were left with money that wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Then, how did Lincoln, the tallest president, get stuck on a tiny penny? Well, if you want to be remembered, the penny is the way to go. More pennies are produced than any other denomination, which puts Lincoln just about everywhere. Under couch cushions, in the washing machine, and behind ears. Listen as a museum educator reveals the museum's plans for Penny Day, a celebration of Lincoln's birthday. Finally, we give you a Valentine's Day treat when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, The Dark Side. This week, we connect White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where associates of Al Capone executed seven members of a rival gang. Did White lampoon the likes of Capone in the pages of his Backwater, Kansas newspaper? Or did his tiny home serve as a hideout for kingpins and crime lords? But first, dirty money. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today we are going to discuss some bad money.
1: That's bad with a B, not mad.
0: (laughs) That's right. These small paper bills were actually printed in the 1850s and issued not by the federal government but by banks in Kansas. The bills are are quite beautiful and display intricate lithograph images of men harvesting grain and neoclassical women seated near a spinning wheel. Unfortunately, all the bills have one thing in common. The banks that, that issued them completely failed.
1: Or, in one case, never actually existed in the first place.
0: <laughs> Since we will be talking about banks and money, um, I think you should define some terms because we'll be throwing around mm-hmm. some terms. Um, can you explain the difference between words like money, currency, bills, banknotes, and script.
1: Yeah, sure, Um, that's a good place to start. Basically, and briefly, money is anything that's accepted as a form of payment for goods or services. Currency is a subset, it's a form of money, but it's limited to coins and paper bills. And bills and banknotes are exchangeable. They're, uh, I mean, the same thing. They're printed on paper. They're promissory notes. That is, they're a, are, they are a promise to pay uh, from some entity. It's basically bank.
0: a little IOU.
1: Uh, and actually, an IOU is a statement that you owe something. Uh, banknote is a statement that it's a promise to pay. Okay. So, uh, so
0: there's a, payment coming, and there's, there's no, doubt coming, no doubt about it. There's payment coming,
1: no doubt, and then theoretically, no yeah, doubt. yeah. Well, yeah, we are talking about failed banknotes <laughs> today, and scrip um, is a substitute for currency. It's not actual money that's being exchanged. It's it's you could consider it like a form of credit. Um, so a subway token is scrip, um, and gift cards, which have become so common today, those are. Script essentially. They're not real money, they're just credit. Mm -hmm.
0: this currency is actually somewhat rare. In fact, currency in general is rare in Kansas in the 1850s. Um, What was the, and I don't want to bore anyone with this word, but what was the monetary situation in Kansas during this time period?
1: Well, you know, I'll just backtrack a little bit, Merle, and say I know this may be boring to some people, but one of the reasons we decided to do this podcast was the current monetary situation in the United States today Uh and all the banking issues that have been circulating. So we thought maybe people would find it interesting to realize that there was a much worse time in at least our state's economy and that was 150 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, the situation in Kansas was that Kansas became a territory Um, in 1854. And that meant it was opened up for settlement. And in theory, a territorial legislature passed some laws that would regulate what was going on inside the territory until it became a state, which in Kansas was seven years later in 1861. Now that's in theory. And what's really critically important um, is that some laws be enacted to regulate banking because there was absolutely no regulation, none at all. I can't reiterate that point often enough at the federal level in the 1850s in the United States. Nothing whatsoever.
0: So when you say like no regulation, I mean, that's not just there was no inspectors coming out looking at things. There was no there was no currency.
1: No federal currency like we have before us right here a Lincoln a $5 bill and it says federal reserve note right on it. Uh-huh. There was no federal reserve bank. There was no federal banking system. There was you know just nothing. So it was totally up to the states and in this case the territory to provide that regulation and um, so you saw anybody pretty much i read one quote where somebody said anybody with a strong box and a will to open a bank could do so Mm -hmm. and that happened in kansas we had a lot of really bad situations going on Um, and on top of that there was so little money the uh, uh, there was no state bank issuing money There was no federal bank issuing money, so what did you have? Well, you had people who were coming here, settlers, bringing their own bank notes from their banks back in Ohio, New York, Indiana, or whatever, miles and miles away. I mean, really hard to cash in if nobody in Kansas wanted those notes. Um, You had all sorts of weird stuff floating around. Some people even used um, land warrants as a form of of, uh, money. Um, What was preferred was gold. Or silver.
0: This money looks nothing like money today. You won't find Washington or Benjamin or Jackson anywhere on these bills. Um, but you will find names like the Citibank of Leavenworth. Who was actually printing this money? And was what they were doing, was it legal?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it was legal in the sense there was no regulation. So what the heck? <laughs> it
0: wasn't illegal. It wasn't
1: illegal. Now, was it ethical? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, so what we're looking at, one of these um, pieces of currency we're looking at today is kind of picture, well, your standard piece of Uh, typing bond. Only on this piece of paper, there's three banknotes that are printed on it, and it's never been cut into separate banknotes. So there's a $1, $2, and a $3 bill all on the same page, and it was issued by the Citibank of Leavenworth, which, as far as we know, was uh, instituted by responsible human beings. Mm-hmm. However, it opened in the spring of 1856 or 57 and closed that summer. <laughs> but before it closed, it issued huge amounts of this currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this was floating around. The bank never really was secure, never got off the ground, and unfortunately, the City Bank of Leavenworth was only one of many examples in Kansas territory at that time period. A lot of really questionable paper notes floating around.
0: We say we say questionable, like the City Bank of Leavenworth. Like they weren't malicious, you know. I don't it think they were. It was just very hard to keep a bank up and yeah. running. So, but on the same hand, every community wanted and needed oh, yeah. a bank. So they're going to try to uh, cultivate a bank uh, to start, and then the bank will almost inevitably fail.
1: Yeah. Well, if you're a town development company, what do you need? You know, you need a school, you need a railroad, you need stores, and you need a bank, uh-huh. right? Um, because otherwise, you're not. A ta- why would anybody come there? Um, so yeah, they were very. important. Important, And a lot of people took a lot of risks in trusting these um, investors.
0: In 1858, the territorial government passed legislation that required banks to prove they had at least $2,500 in coins in the bank. Why was the territorial government getting involved in the banking industry? they're not banks
1: no they're not at all um and you know the federal government clearly wasn't doing this or doing this role at all but but there was a real sentiment around the country that that was the role of the states even though we didn't have a state yet there had been 4 years of unbridled uh, scoundrelism i mean just awful stuff going on people losing money right and left and it was about time Mm -hmm. that the territorial government stepped in and did something and by 1858 the whole slavery -slavery, anti-slavery pro-slavery thing had calmed down enough that they could really get down to some real business and step in where they needed to because the federal government wasn't doing it Um, and the government the federal government would actually pretty shortly, start doing this during the Civil War, just a few years later, uh, when it realized that, you know, massive amounts of material and supplies were needed to fund the war. And guess what? The gold and silver just wasn't there in the banks. I mean, they they couldn't back up all that paper currency with um, with precious metals so they had to start creating a national banking system but you know that was a ways into the future
0: and we're so shocked today to or we're not shocked but we're surprised to see the government do inter, can, you know intervene in the banking mm-hmm. industry to bail out the banking industry well it was the same thing was happening in 1858 in yeah. Kansas i mean essentially this is the territorial government not necessarily bailing out but coming in to to structure yeah. and guarantee banks and, and, the and reason... basically,
1: they said you can't operate as a bank unless we charter you, mm-hmm. which was a huge important step. I mean, they they basically got rid of all the scandals. They said unless we say it's okay, you can't circulate yeah. it. Now, I'm sure it was still circul; there was still some bad stuff circulating. Only if people would accept it, though. So it was a huge step.
0: And they had to because like, prior to that point, it had been totally free market, which Mm -hmm. had resulted in tons of failed banks and people standing around with currency that had no money and an economy that couldn't grow at all.
1: Well, you and I were talking about this. I mean, we're looking at this $5 bill from today um, here in front of us, and we think of that as money. That's absolutely, that's money. No, it's actually just a promissory note. It's paper. Uh Um, And that attitude in the 1850s was very strong, that paper was completely worthless. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's something we take for granted.
0: Right. When you say money, I think of a $1 bill. I, when you say a million dollars, I think of a million ones uh-huh. stacked up. And really, the paper has no value. It has no
1: value. It's purely the promise that is behind the paper and whatever the banks can back that up with. Nowadays, it's not, well, there's probably some precious metals in a bank vault, but most of it is other securities, um, and which has gotten some of our banks into trouble.
0: Indeed. Without a doubt, early banking was a risky business for everyone involved. But some bankers found a way to subvert risk, if you will, (laughs) much like bankers today. (laughs) They became known as wildcat bankers. What is a wildcat bank?
1: Well, a wildcat bank is an institution that was started in a very remote rural area. Hmm, does that Mm. sound like Kansas in the 1850s? Territorial
0: Kansas would fit the bill. Uh,
1: Not only was Kansas remote and really difficult to get to, but um, it was wide open. I mean, there was so much other political stuff going on that anybody could step in and say, I'm going to start a bank in Leavenworth. Mm -hmm. Um, So a wildcat bank had to be very remote and what made it um a wildcat from what i can tell is just you know the the wildcat is like a, a wild animal so it's just that wildcat term signifies it was very remote um the key thing about wildcat banks bank notes is that they were essentially irredeemable because of their distance and the difficulty to get to the the bank, the sponsoring institution. So, one of the wildcat notes we have in our collection is from the Merchants Bank of Fort Leavenworth. Um, this is really one of those rich stories. One of the reasons I got into history because you know it's just fascinating. This man named Lucian Ayers from New Hampshire comes to Kansas right after the territory opens in 1854 and he declares he's going to open a bank and, uh, you know, kind of hangs around town for a while, you know, acts the the big guy, big man on campus, and then uh, goes back east and has a bunch of notes printed up with um, the words, you know, Merchants Bank of Leavenworth and all these fine things you've been talking about, like, you know, the eagle, you know, that signifies, you know, uh, the government and uh, women and... and U.S.
0: Class, neoclassical women yes, with a spinning wheel. Cornucopias.
1: You know, spilling out the bounty of the territory. Makes it all look very official. A- official and, and a going concern. He prints these up and he circulates them in wide quantities to people who are planning on coming to Kansas.
0: Because ne- you'll need your money when you get You'll need here. your
1: money, yeah. And I'm sure he got goods and services in exchange for this money. And, you know, he was talking about how great his bank was. He He never actually established a bank. So when all those poor people came to Kansas, uh, there was no bank. They had this completely worthless paper on their hands. And uh, one of the f- the funny things about Ayers is that he, dis- he does get arrested, which is amazing because Good. not only was there no federal regulation at this time, but there's no territorial regulation in Kansas, but he gets arrested on, on the charge of arson. So
0: <laughs> he bank was- Bank fraud, arson, whatever. I wonder, I
1: wonder if he burnt down a bank. I never found <laughs> out. Uh, yeah, he was a really bad guy. Um, and he cheated a lot of people out of money. But we have this extremely rare wildcat banknote in our collections. That's
0: great. Um, So, okay, Rebecca, say I wanted to start my own bank today. And even say I had that required $2,500 in change Mm. um, sitting in the vault. Could I print my own money today? And if I did, would it be a poor idea to put a wildcat in the middle? Because I'm a K-State grad, and that's what I'd like to put on it.
1: Hey, wildcat you Are know, you accusing
0: just, my university of being fraudulent? That's
1: what I'm wondering. Where'd they get that from? I don't
0: know. Where'd uh, my tuition go? <laughs>
1: Interestingly enough, Merle, you could print your own money so long as it did not take the place of the Federal Reserve notes that are in in wide circulation and sanctioned by the Federal Reserve. And there have been some examples um, in in this country today where communities are trying to get their own currency started, which I think is fascinating. Um, It's not credit statements. It's not IOU. It's just like their own real little currency. But if you came into those stores and you offered them them a Federal Reserve note, they would have to take that too. Um, it would just you be, couldn't
0: exclude you the You couldn't exclude
1: money. because, as the note says clearly on it, this note is legal tender. So you have to take a Federal Reserve note. But um, one of the reasons these communities are doing this kind of thing is that they're trying to keep money around locally and encourage people to buy locally. Um, one of the uh, communities that did this was Lawrence, Kansas, uh, probably as little as five or six years ago. They tried to get their own um, currency going, but they found there were a couple of problems with it. First of all, uh, most merchants don't buy their goods locally. You know, oh, yeah. that's a big crimp in the plans. And the second thing is, we're so used to using credit cards for everything that it just never really took off. Um, but it is a really interesting idea. Um, it's and,
0: fascinating when you start thinking about the implications of it. Yeah. Like, what is the exchange rate between your Lawrence money and the federal money? And who standardizes one one? that?
1: Yeah, you really have to have a lot of trust in your community uh, and your merchants to uh, rely on their dollars um, to to be the same or equal stability as a Federal Reserve note.
0: Well, Rebecca, thanks for telling us about some of the uh, currency from failed banks in Kansas.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: If you would like to see images of dirty money from failed territorial banks, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the word Podcasts. Since 1909, Abraham Lincoln's effigy on the one cent penny hasn't aged a bit. In reality, Lincoln turns 200 this year, and I'm guessing he looks a little different now. Listen as Folk Arts Coordinator Joy Brennan reveals the museum's plan for Penny Day, a celebration of Lincoln's birthday. Welcome Joy Brennan. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Today, uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about Penny Day, which is an event at the museum on February 14th, 2009. Penny Day is uh, actually a birthday celebration. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Joy, whose birthday are we celebrating on Penny Day and why?
2: Well, we are celebrating Abraham Lincoln's 200th birthday. It actually falls on the 12th, but we thought we'd open it up on a Saturday so more people could come out and celebrate with us. Um, We also have an exhibit that has just opened up to the public called Lincoln in Kansas, Mm -hmm. so we'll be debuting that exhibit as well.
0: A druggist in Buffalo, New York, was the first to celebrate Lincoln's birthday. Um, probably besides his mom, I guess. She probably celebrated it, too. Um, and that he did this in 1874. Uh, today, it's tradition to lay a wreath at the Lincoln Memorial and at his tomb in Springfield, uh, Springfield Illinois, on February 12th. What kind of activities will people be doing around the museum on that day? Hopefully not um, laying memorial wreaths anywhere.
2: We won't have any wreaths, but we'll have a lot of other fun activities. Uh, you can pay a penny to get in that day. That's all it'll cost you. And um, There's we'll,
0: a Lincoln connection again. They'll pay. That's
2: right. That's right. And we'll also have Abe Lincoln here in person to visit with you. And get, you can take your picture with him if you'd like. Uh, we'll have lots of activities for kids and families as well, such as um, Lincoln Hat storybooks that you can make. Um, We'll also have you'll have an opportunity to write some advice down uh, for President Obama as well. Um, There's a story about a little girl in Kansas who wrote uh, to Abe Lincoln um, before he was elected president, and uh, she gave him some advice to grow whiskers and that he would get more votes that way. So we thought we'd use that story. uh,
0: Brilliant political strategist. That's
2: right. So we thought we'd use that fun. story because Grace moved to Kansas a little bit later in life and we claim her as a Kansan now. Um, uh, President Obama as well has Kansas connections so we thought we'd use that and uh, let our visitors write some advice to President Obama and we'll mail it to him later. Um, We'll have some activities where you can pitch pennies into a top hat um, and you can also buy, uh, pay five dollars for a Lincoln top hat paper top hat as well. And all that funding that we raised for that will go to um, preserve some artifacts that we have here that relate to Lincoln.
0: Great. So lots going on. Um, Lincoln came to Kansas uh, only once in 1859. And in 2001, author Carol Dark Ayers wrote an entire book about this one visit, which I think lasted about a week. Um, you can actually purchase the book, Lincoln in Kansas, at the museum gift shop. They have a, they have an online um, store you can purchase as well. But I understand that uh, we're gonna have a little surprise on Penny Day. Uh, what is that surprise?
2: That's right, well, Carol Dark Ayers will also be here in person at the museum on February February the 14th. She'll be talking about her book, Lincoln in Kansas, at two o'clock that day, and it'll be free for our visitors. Mm-hmm. So come on in, and she could also sign a book if you want to purchase one that day and you can listen about why she wrote that book.
0: Well, Lincoln was all about preservation. In fact, I believe it was his goal to preserve the Union. Uh, With Penny Day in mind, can you explain how Lincoln continues to advocate preservation?
2: Well, as I mentioned earlier, we'll have several activities that you can pitch Lincoln pennies into hats and, and purchase uh, with a $5 bill that also features Lincoln on it. You can purchase a paper top hat. All of that funding is going to preserve artifacts that we have in our museum that relate to Lincoln mm-hmm. and his time period. We've got some great artifacts that need a little bit of loving care, mm-hmm. but that loving care costs. It does. Yes. So we are trying to raise money to uh, restore an inaugural ball gown that was worn to Lincoln's inaugural. We have an umbrella that was used to cover President Lincoln while he was giving an address in New York. And we also have a banner, a Lombard banner, that was used in the Lincoln-Douglas debates.
0: Yeah, nice stuff. So, uh, you know, if you like birthdays or if you want to get rid of a bunch of pennies, come to the museum on Saturday, February 14th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. for Penny Day, a celebration of Lincoln's 200th birthday. As Joy mentioned, you can chip in for Penny Day by giving a Lincoln for Lincoln. Just go to the museum store, contribute $5, and a top hat will be posted in the exhibit with your name on it. Or go to our podcast page of our website, kshs.org, and click on Donate. Your money will help preserve museum artifacts that are in desperate need of attention. It's a
2: rich man's world.
0: And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me this week is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Exhibits Technician Morgan Shortle. Hi. This week we we continue to explore the dark side of William Allen White, which this will be the last week for this, by looking at the more nefarious characters (laughs) associated with him. This week, we connect William L. White, small-town newspaper editor from Kansas, to the notorious Valentine's Day Massacre. You guys excited?
3: Pumped, yes. Totally. It was
0: good stuff. So here's a little general background on the St. Valent- Valentine's Day Massacre. It's actually related to Al Capone. And Capone was born in 1899 to Italian immigrants living in Brooklyn, New York. He later moved to sh- to the Chicago suburb of Cicero, where he basically took over the town government. His illegal organization operated prostitution, gambling, racketeering, and most importantly, because it was the most lucrative, was the selling of liquor during Prohibition. So basically he's got all the biggies. Prostitution, gambling, (laughs) racketeering, liquor. Check. Nice guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And even more fun, he later died of syphilis, um, probably contracting it while he quote interviewed new employees in the prostitution business. Mm. Um, so great guy. Um,
3: and now sexual harassment. <laughs> we learned that.
0: <laughs> and um, okay, so now we'll get to the Saint Saint Valentine's Day Massacre specifically. Um, that was the name assigned to the death of seven people in a Chicago warehouse on February 14th, 1929. So on Saint Valentine's Day. Uh, the massacre was the result of a vast gang war between, ri- between gang rivals, Bugs Moran, which apparently Bugs is gangland speak for crazy. Bugs. Mm. That's why Bugs Bunny is the crazy bunny. Oh. I
3: thought
0: that was kind of interesting. So, so it was like a mob bunny? No, he's just crazy. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it was rivals Bugs Moran and Al Capone. Um on that day, on February 14th, four members of Capone's gang, gang, actually disguised as policemen, led seven members of Moran's gang into a warehouse and shot them. No one's really sure on what the exact specifics of the event were, like how these guys were able to lure them to the warehouse or what they were doing there. Um, photographs of the co- crime scene, uh, which depicted dead bodies and a blood-soaked floor, uh, were immediately photographed. And published in the newspaper uh, Newspapers across the country And uh, it became quite a sensation In the US But most importantly the, the massacre caught the attention Of the federal government Previous to that the federal government Had not really been involved In investigating organized crime But this massacre Because of its wide publication Really piqued the interest of the FBI Which eventually leads to um, Tough times for organized crime And that's the St. Valentine's Day Massacre Uh, Morgan, I believe uh, you have a solution.
2: Yes, one of our listeners wrote in. uh, Cade from Chicago writes, William Allen White knew Carl Sandburg and wrote him a letter commenting on his poetry. Carl Sandburg was friends with John Fujita. John Fujita was a Japanese-American who photographed for the Chicago Daily News. John was the only photographer to photograph the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and he was also acquaintances with Al
0: Capone. Mm. Hmm. So there you have it. William Allen White to Sandberg to Vegeta to St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Cade um, goes on to say it was never proven that Capone ordered the hit on Bugs Moran's Side Irish gang. Perhaps Mr. White was closer to St. Valentine's <laughs> Massacre than he thought. So, so, so somehow implying that White may have instigated the St. Valentine's Day Massacre.
3: <laughs> he seems like such a jolly man, though, William Allen White does. I don't think but he does. But he and Al Capone kind of had the same body shape. So, a little chubby. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You
3: know,
0: well, once not again, not that, that Kade, had anything to do with it. <laughs> <yeah>. Once again, Cade, <laughs> you have shown your extensive skills at Six Degrees of William Allen White. We commend you, but Nikayla, I believe you have a better solution.
3: Well, I don't know that it's better, but I think it is shorter. So, as you mentioned, Al Capone was responsible for uh, orchestrating the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Capone had eight siblings, so he was one of nine children. Um, one of whom was James Capone. He was the oldest of the family, and one of the few brothers to live the straight and narrow path. Um,
0: he he was he went legit.
3: He went legit. Uh, James moved to Nebraska and changed his name to Richard Hart. And while living there, he became a federal prohibition agent and later was a special special agent of the Bureau of Indian Affairs.
0: Well, that's just that's just ironic, right? Yeah. So, there. like
3: the total opposite of how Capone. Uh, In this role, he was once given the duty of protecting Calvin Coolidge and his family while they visited the Black Hills area. And Coolidge corresponded with William Allen White, and also William Allen White wrote a biography of him entitled A Puritan in Babylon. Um, Coolidge supposedly slept in the infamous bed while visiting the William Allen White House. The
0: bed that four presidents slept in.
3: But not at the same time.
0: Ha <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum. laughs> And you can see that bed on exhibit in the William Allen White House in Emporia, Kansas. That's right. All right, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Morgan, would you like to share the challenge for the next episode? Yes,
2: I would. Next week, we celebrate Black History Month by attempting to connect William Allen White to Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. This former slave was friends with well-known authors and presidents. Sound like anyone we know? <laughs> well, except for the whole former slave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you think you can connect the sage of Emporia to the Sage of Anacosta, just send us your chain of connections to podcasts at KsHs.org. That's podcast with an S. Monday, Monday, Monday Must be funny. in the rich man. That concludes episode 74, Dirty Money. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I go deep underground to examine a red telephone used in a vast bomb shelter two stories below the county courthouse in Topeka. Was this phone connected to missile silos in rural Kansas or used by hungry county employees to order pizza? This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.